Luke has been doing our young professional group for four years. Here, I'll give you some room. You can throw your Bible there. And young professionals is a group of 20-somethings, 30-somethings that are just professionals in the area. Him and his uh, new wife of how many years? One year? Two years? Two years. Have been ministering and pastoring them and helping them to grow in discipleship and love of the Lord and how to be believers in this professional world in a really powerful way. But for nine years, Luke has also been uh, the area director for Fellowship of Christian Athletes for nine years and has traveled extensively in Asia, ministering and serving over the years. So I'm just really blessed to know him and thankful for his service here and and also that we get to be fellow servants together in this body. So let's pray for you. That be all right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Father, for Luke. Thank you for his years of love to you first and then his service. And thank you that his heart is to please you, to see you uh, lifted up and, and glorified in the midst of people all over the world, Lord, and in this area. Grant him, Lord, your, your spirit of peace, Lord, as he shares your word. And um, hmm. thank you for the gift of his wife to him, too, Lord, recently. What a blessing. Jesus' name, bless him. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. How you guys doing? Doing good? That was awesome to hear, to see the dedication of little Charlotte, and I think we can agree as a church uh, body that we will hopefully all continue to pray for her, and that was really um, just awesome to hear those answers to prayer and just see her cute face. Um, before I kind of get in uh, to this morning, we're continuing here at Calvary Slow, uh, in a series through the book of Acts. And I get to participate in that and help share with you guys while, while Brian's gone, and I'm glad to do so. Uh, as Gunther mentioned, I've been helping with the Young Professionals group. I'm just one of the guys in the rotation that help teach, and I have an incredible community group here at the church, a lot of wonderful friendships and just a sense of, of community. And a little while back, we actually did a series through Acts, and it's such a powerful book, and there's so much um, in it as we look at this this history, this narrative about what God is doing and his redemptive plan in the world. Um, so, but before we kind of get into that, I just want to share just a season of life. It's been really fun. My wife and I uh, recently had our first child. So there's a little picture of little Isaac, Daniel Lamas. So that's pretty fun. So he'll get dedicated up here uh, at some point. And um, it's been fun. Another picture, if you see, if you guys know Ben and Eric, they also had babies within like the, all within like a, well, 10 days of each other. I think Eric was, or Ben was uh, eight hours before us. It's kind of funny, we're in the hospital, and they're like, hey, it's really busy, we might have to put somebody in your room. I'm like, okay, that, you know, that's all right. And we found out it was going to be Ben and Nicole Potter, they are going to move into our room. It's like, oh, great, it's like a little, you know, gathering. <laughs> and then, uh, well, before this one, so this, this story, Eric, who's been teaching for this ACT series, he uh, has been the junior high youth, or youth pastor here for a long time, he's going to be doing college ministry. If you don't know, Eric and I went to Cal Poly around the same time, and we're in Athletes in Action together, and he was a wrestler. I was a distance runner, which means he could, you know, win in any argument if it got physical pretty quickly. But, but Eric comes to me, you know, very serious at one point when we were talking right after our, our kids were born, these little boys. And he goes, Luke, he's like, you know, you got to promise me. You're going to let him, Isaac, wrestle, right? You're going to let him wrestle. you got to let him wrestle, you know. And he was, like, really serious. And, uh, and so I guess my son's probably going to be a, a wrestler, you know, we'll see. But, but I got this picture of them their first time, and Eric's kind of, or Isaac's pinning Asa, you know, on the ground, so. <laughs> One zero, Team Lamas, so, anyways. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun season of life just to, you know, be new parents and to 
um, yeah, just being that season, I just want to share with you, that with you guys. And um, it's been neat to hear Eric and, you know, seeing his journey and him, you know, teaching here with the church and just how God has transformed his life and hearing from James and Gunther. And, and uh, of course, we all miss Brian and be good to have him back. But I'm just glad to be with you guys this morning and get to share a little bit from God's word. So um, that's kind of a lighthearted way to start it out. But to, actually this morning, we're going to be talking as we look at God's word about some pretty heavy uh, truths and some heavy realities um, in the history of the early church and related to Herod's persecution of the church is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, and we have more Bibles that they'll, they'll hand out if you want to raise your hand. We've got some extra ones. love for you to, to read and follow along. And not only will we see the, the, the heaviness of, of some of what was taking place in the Church of Acts with the persecution we've already witnessed or, or read up to this point about the martyr of Stephen. We saw in chapter 8 how persecution broke out and the curly Christians were scattered throughout the known, uh, the, that area because of persecution. It says actually everyone scattered from Jerusalem except for the apostles who stayed. And so we're going to be looking at that and, and then also be reminded that not only was persecution taking place then, but even today. We're very sometimes very um, protected from some of the harsh realities of what it means to be a Christian in the world today. Um, but we're going to be reminded of what's happening in the world um, in terms of persecution, the persecuted church and other parts of the world and so on. So uh, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. There's a lot of really good stuff in this chapter that come after verse 5, but they only gave me five verses. They're like, okay, here you go. You got verses 1 through 5. I was like... What about, like, you know, can I, like, bleed over a little bit in some of those? But no, got to keep it in one spot. But it's good. There's a lot of really uh, rich stuff here. So I'm excited to, to teach this passage and to, um, to look at it together. So, again, this Herod Agrippa's persecution of the, of the church, specifically when we're talking about um, the death of, of James, uh, the execution of James, the apostle, and then also Peter being arrested. And so let me read this passage, and we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, sorry, it's kind of loud. King Herod, uh, actually, let me read it in here, just because it's the same as the, the translation you guys got. It says, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity and the privilege it is, Lord, to know you, to have a relationship with you, uh, to worship you. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, um, that we might know you, that we might grow in faith and in, um, in trust and in love and in, and in worship of you, Lord Jesus. And God, I just pray that this morning as we talk about these passages, that you'd be uh, with us, that you would remove the distractions from this past week and help us to be focused and mindful of what you want to speak to us, Lord, what we can learn from this passage and, and the application of it to our lives, Lord. So I just pray that you'd be very present with us this morning. Um, thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to teach your word. And uh, God, I just pray for each and every person that's here this morning that you'd meet us right where we're at. 
and you would grow us deeper in our faith and in our love for you. And for those who may be here this morning, Lord, who don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would come to know the sweetness and the joy of a relationship with you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So just by way of context and kind of bring it up to speed of where we're at, we've, we've seen a lot of events happen in this narrative book of the Bible, the book of Acts, which comes after the four Gospels and before Romans as Paul begins to write theology and, and uh, letters, epistles to the church. And this is telling the story of what was happening in the early church. And we've seen a lot of incredible events of God's working in the world uh, at this point with Peter at, at Pentecost, Pentecost and thousands of people responding to the gospel. And then they continued to preach, and the opposition from the Jews and the religious leaders, and them saying, hey, you know, as you decide how you'll respond, but for us, we're going to serve the Lord. We can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. And so these early Christians and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, who were present or in the area when he was killed, and then who were experienced him and interacted with him and engaged with him after he had risen from the dead. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they began to travel and to preach and to minister the gospel. And the gospel message was spreading, and as a result of that, the religious system, the the Jews, and even the Roman Empire was intimidated and somewhat threatened by this early movement, these people of the way, who just a couple of verses earlier had recently been named Christians, Small Christ, followers of of the Christ. And they are traveling, they are ministering, they are having these home churches be established, and they're praying, they're seeing the work of God move. We saw earlier, uh, as was recently taught, how, as Gunther taught, how prophecy was taking place. How Peter had this amazing revelation and had a new understanding of how God was working to reach the Gentiles and was told to go and to eat and that he didn't need to continue to follow some of the same dietary laws and restrictions. That those restrictions didn't apply to the Gentiles, and that they could come and, and be saved. And God was working amongst the Gentiles. And so as a result of this, some of these Christians were seen as, as a threat. This is about 10 years after the resurrection, just in, in the time period. And, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding of what Christians believed. Some of the things that the Christians did, they had to kind of do privately or in secret, and there wasn't a lot of understanding of what was taking place. They knew that they would drink Jesus' blood and eat his flesh, and they were accused of being cannibals. They didn't worship the pagan gods and deities, so sometimes people would say that, you know, they were atheists. Christians were accused of being atheists, the early Christians, kind of ironic, right? Um, They were, were, you know, told to be causing an uprising against the state because they were, you know, worshiping Jesus as king and not Caesar as king, or in this case, in their local area, Herod was the local uh, regional king. And so there was, there was, people were intimidated. There was, uh, they were, the Christians were seen as a threat. And yet really what the Christians were doing was speaking a message of hope, a message of life, a message of redemption, and loving one another through acts of kindness and service and, um, you know, ministering to one another's needs. So the people at the time were intimidated by the Christians, but the Christians, really what they were doing was, was 
being light and salt in their community. They were showing love and kindness to the people around them. And yet, Herod and, and others, they were, they were threatened by this, especially the Jews, they were threatened by this. So it's growing. So that's kind of the context of kind of where we, we find ourselves. And then Herod, um, I, I did a little bit of um, you know, research, we'll talk a little bit more in a, in a second about Herod and kind of which Herod this is, Herod, Herod Agrippa. Because kind of like uh, today or in, in some cultures, you know, when you have a child, you give them your, your first name. Um, and you know, or the father will give his son his name and so on. So there were multiple Herods because every Herod named his son Herod. And so it's like, is this Herod or Herod? Or Herod's Herod or the third or fourth Herod? So we'll look at that and kind of get an understanding of which Herod this is. But just real quick, this Herod was in rule or in reign. He had kind of a troubled past. He had kind of family problems, political problems. Uh, he he had, was kind of an outcast, had to go different places. Uh, again, we'll get into that a little bit, a little bit later. Um, but he was eventually in this place of, of Judea. He reigned in that area about seven years, about four years. He was over uh, Jerusalem and Judea in this specific area, Okay. And while he's there, he was very motivated to, find, to gain the, the favor of the Jewish people and to seek their approval and praise. And as you know, he's going on, during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says he decides to begin to persecute the church and to actually seek out James, who was an apostle and one of the leaders uh, you know, of the church at the time. Um, he seeks him out, and he actually has him killed. And so there's three kind of main things that we'll look at this morning as we look at this passage. Three things that stand out. They're kind of basic or, or simple. Um, not, not simple, but just things that, that I really want us to recognize or, or acknowledge here. The first one it says that, is this, that James' commitment to Christ cost him his life. We'll look at James and how he came to begin early on to follow Jesus. And one of the things we'll see is that James' commitment to Christ, in the end, it cost him his life. We'll talk a little bit about the cost of discipleship. The second thing is that Herod valued the favor of man over, the, over favor with God. Herod was somebody who cared about the people's opinion and about power and money and wealth and all of these, these earthly things. And he was somebody that didn't care or fear God, but he feared man. And eventually we'll, you know, probably not tonight, well, spoiler, eventually we'll see the cost of what that, that ends up costing him his life. But Herod was somebody who um, valued favor with man over favor with God. And then third, the last thing, is that the early church responded to persecution with earnest prayer. And we'll talk this morning about the importance of prayer as a response to hardship or persecution or trial or suffering. That sound good? So let's look at that first one. James' commitment to Christ cost him his life. You know, I kind of mentioned briefly a little bit earlier that being here on the Central Coast, we're somewhat removed to some of the harsh realities that many Christians face in the world. Not to, not to diminish or minimize some of the real hardships that we face in our life, or trials that you've gone through, or grief, or suffering, or hardship, or even maybe some forms of persecution. But I think it's fair to say that it's mild compared to what many Christians have faced throughout history, and to what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing around the world. Would you agree that that's probably fair to, to say? And so let's look at James's life, because when we think about James, who was initially a fisherman, probably from like a middle, middle class family of some sort, his dad had this fishing business, um, his brother, younger brother, John, was working with him, and John had a choice, I mean, sorry, James had a choice at some point in his life when he was confronted with Jesus, when he 
interacted with Jesus for the first time. Jesus basically called him out, made a call on his life, and said, will you follow me? And James had a response to make. Either, no, I'm going to continue doing my thing with my goals and my dreams and my plans, or yes, I will follow you, not knowing exactly what that will mean or require of me or what that will take, but yes, I will follow you. You see that? He would have a choice in his life. And we also have a choice in our life when we're confronted with spiritual truth or with the message of the gospel or when Christ comes to us through a friend or a family member or a sermon and says, will you follow me? We also have a response. And so here we see with James in uh, Matthew 4, 18 through 25. I think we have that slide. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So they made this choice. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. There's a passage, I think we have it in a slide, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. He says, unless you hate your life and leave your father, mother, sister, brother, and for my name's sake, and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. There's, a, there's a, a heavy cost sometimes of what it means to follow Christ. But here, James says, for him, he didn't think very long about it. He says, immediately, he left his net. Now, I mean, if you're on a boat all day, salt water, and fish, and guts, and cleaning. I mean, you got kind of like, hey, come follow me and be a, a disciple, a student of a rabbi. You might be like, sweet, I'm out of here. Sorry, Dad. You know, later. I don't know. But there was definitely uncertainty in what it would mean to follow Christ for him. And he, he made that choice to follow him. And then we see, um, sorry, and so then it goes on here as Jesus follows them. This, I, I left this in here just because it kind of gives us a picture and to remember what these early disciples were doing with Jesus when they were following him. It says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, this is Jesus, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, Neapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so these disciples, one of their responsibilities as early followers of Jesus, he says, hey, you've been fishing for fish. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And one of the early things that they did is they actually went and like, found people that were suffering and sick and diseased, and they would physically like, lift, pick them up and carry them to Jesus so that they could be healed. That was their, their job. They would go in the cities, go in the communities as they would travel these places. They would find people, and they would bring them physically to Jesus so that he could heal them, he could minister to them. Pretty, pretty cool. You can imagine the experiences that they had. If you've served in various capacities, you know, in different ways serving people, maybe you've served the homeless, or you served at a, at a food bank, or you served meals to people who needed it, or you've done a service, a mission, been on a missions trip, and you've seen those who are hurting and suffering, and, and you've witnessed care and aid and, and You've seen the hands and you've been the hands and the feet of the body of Christ, bringing life and nourishment and hope to people. Have, have you seen that? And you've seen the response on people's face. 
and the joy that they have when you do a kind gesture. I was watching something. Some of you guys have been watching the Olympics, and there was a little thing. I think it was actually some of the swimmers doing a, like, carpool karaoke. I don't know, social media. I don't know how I saw that. But it was pretty funny. But there was one point in there, as they're all laughing and goofing and so on, where the guy grabs a little camera, and he just shifts it slightly. And what he's showing is that one of the swimmers from the back seat had gotten out of the car as they were, like, stopped at a light. He ran over to a homeless guy on the side of the road in Rio de Janeiro, and he handed him something. I'm assuming some food or some type of gift. And the person had, like, a, you know, their, their, their sleeping bag and a bunch of stuff, and there was this homeless person there. And he, he handed him this thing, and you could see this guy's expression. Probably didn't even know he was an Olympian. But a quick gesture, and the guy, you wouldn't even have seen it, except the guy just kind of turned the camera, and then, and then the guy gets back in, and they, they drive off, and they keep singing. And I thought, wow, that was, that was actually pretty cool. That was pretty cool. They're there for the Olympics, doing all this stuff, and yet that guy, I don't even know who it was, which swimmer it was, was mindful enough of the homeless person on the side of the road to go and reach out and do a kind gesture. Right? Does that, does that make sense? Pretty, pretty cool. And yet Jesus, with the disciples, they were doing this all the time on a daily basis. They would bring people to Jesus, and they would see lives changed and transformed. It must have been pretty amazing to witness. And you can imagine, if you've ever served with people in various ways on a mission trip or, or something, you know, the closeness and the bonds and the connections that you form when you're caring for those who are in need or ministering to those who, you know, there's some uncertainty of whether or not they're going to accept what you say or reject it or persecution or opposition. And I share about that to, to just help us be mindful of the bond and the connection that Jesus would have had with James. The bond that John and James' brothers would have had as they had lived these three years with Jesus and then the ten years that followed up until this point. Does that make sense? The, con- the connection, the intimacy, the closeness, the love that they would have had for one another. And so we see with James and John that they served with Christ. However, it wasn't always, they didn't always get it right. It wasn't always perfect for them. If we look at uh, Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, near verse 38. Let's turn there. It says this. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Before he said, Okay, what is it? He said, Well, what is it? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. You are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom he has prepared. And then the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So here's the situation where James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, Lord, grant us this request. When you're in your glory, and whether they understood that to mean when you overthrow Rome and become the Messiah and the king in Israel, or whether they understood that as when you are in heaven as king for eternity, I think maybe probably the the, the former, the the first one, they said, let us be at your right and your left. Basically, let us be your right-hand men. Let us have the the highest position of prominence in your kingdom once it's finally established. Would you do that for us? It's basically kind of like a power play for them. 
And, and Jesus says, look, can you endure the things that I'm going to have to endure? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. Kind of, you know, na- naive a little bit, right? And then he says, well, the reality is that you will have to endure what I'm going to have to endure. But I cannot grant you these seats. That's for the Father to decide and those who they've already been assigned and appointed. But you will drink the cup that I drink and, and have to bear what I have to bear. And here we see that prophecy in, in many ways coming to fruition in James's life. That because they chose to follow Christ, they were going to have to endure hardship. And what we know from, from history and tradition is that all of the apostles, all of the early disciples, uh, the early apostles who were following Christ, all of them were in fact martyred at some point in their life. Except for James's little brother here, John, who eventually was exiled to Patmos after they attempted to, to martyr him. And so here we see that uh, in this situation, James and John, kind of not maybe at their most spiritually mature place in their journey, in their life, kind of requesting these positions of power, and Jesus having to engage with them, and then the rest of the disciples kind of getting a little bit upset with them, like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Like, we're all in this together. We're all equal. We're peers here. Why are you trying to, like, level up on us and, and be over us or whatnot? And, and yet Jesus responds, and he's teaching them through this. And then later Jesus will teach them, if you look at um, John 15, so again, this is James who's martyred in this chapter, in this part of Acts, his younger brother writing this, in many ways, it'll probably be about 40 or 50, maybe 50 years later, he recounts Jesus teaching them at the Last Supper in the upper room, in the, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. We saw that with James and John, how he chose them and called them from their vocation, their job, to follow him. But because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And, and James is it's coming to a place in his life where he's enduring that. He's facing that reality. And... I don't know, it doesn't tell us, it's actually just a couple verses, like I said, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot of context of how James responded or, you know, how, you know it says that he was killed with a sword, so assuming he was, you know, executed um, in, in, in that way. And we don't know exactly how he felt, what emotions he was facing, um, his anxiety, what he might have said, but you can, you can only imagine. And how the, jur- the church, the early church, must have responded to this, it would have been really heavy. The sense of of loss, the sense of grief, the sense of, of weeping over this hero of the faith who had, who had matured from this, that, that part, you know, and he had really grown as being a pillar of, of the early church, one of the key leaders. Some would say him and Peter being like the two main guys kind of at the time before Paul, you know, rose to kind of prominence after his conversion. And so here we see um, James following Christ, it cost him his life. Do you see that? Do you see that there? And the point of that, or kind of some application from that for us, is to follow Christ, for all of us, it costs us our life. It doesn't mean that our life may be short or that we will be martyred or, or killed, but it does cost us our life in some way. Do you think that's true? Is that fair to say? To follow Christ costs us our life. We have to come before God and say, Lord, I live in this world you know, I have my flesh, my earthly desires, and my desires for 
wealth or prestige or fame or power, whatever it, it may be, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these things that are just natural for us as, as fallen humans, and yet we come to know the Lord Jesus. We understand what he's doing in the world. He commissions us to be a part of his work in the world, and we have to come to a place of saying, okay, God, these are my goals and objectives and plans and dreams. Do I really trust you that you have something better, that you have something that you're calling me into, that you have a dream and a vision and a plan for my life, that you're wanting me to shift my attention and my focus from that to this. That it will cost us our life. But Jesus says, he who loses his life for my name's sake, the gospel, will gain it, will find it. That true life comes from letting go of our life in the sense of our plans for our life and embracing who God wants us to be in the world and what he wants to do through our life. Amen? So for, here, for James, we see that to follow Christ, it cost him his life. And although for, for many of us, it probably won't be the same, uh, to the same extent as it was for James, for many in the world today, it is. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. The next part is that, the part two is that Herod favored, or valued favor with man over favor with God. So let's talk a little bit about Herod again. I talked earlier a little bit about his uh, kind of bio, who he was. Um, I had mentioned that he was uh, kind of exiled from Rome, from what I understood. I was reading some stuff. There's some stuff that Josephus talks a lot about him. You could actually make a whole apologetic about the authority of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture just from this passage because of, you know, it's important. When we look at God's Word, when it talks about Herod and James and all of these events that took place, this is not mythology. This is not stuff that was written way, you know, way back to kind of make some grand epic like Homer or something that was a really cool story. These are the facts written by Luke very close to when they happened talking about Herod, who many other uh, scholars and historians at the time also talk about. And eventually, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at Herod's death. And the, I was reading the, the details and, and the description of Herod's death from what Josephus wrote about it versus what it talks about in Acts. And there's some discrepancy or, or, or disagreement about the type of person that Herod was. The Jews in their writings, Talmud and so on, they talk very kind of highly about Herod as being very nice and kind and a kind ruler. And then you have what the Christians kind of taught about him. And depending on who you were in the society, affected how you were treated, okay, or talked about, or, you know, yeah, how you were treated. But it, the, the description of his death is actually very similar. It's very interesting. It, it's pretty heavy. We'll, we'll look at that in, in future weeks. But here, we see that Herod was somebody who was exiled. And then, it actually comes and says that at one point in Herod's life, he had a lot of financial problems and had to kind of, he, he had people that liked him who were in political power and people that didn't like him and he was always trying to like navigate and negotiate these relationships. But it said that at one point he was actually almost to the verge of suicide, Herod in his life. So pretty tumultuous kind of past and upbringing and all, all this stuff. And then he was, I think it was Caligula or somebody that brought him under their wing and then gave him a position of prominence and then that kind of grew and expanded and eventually he found himself over Ju- Judea. But it was kind of a fragile role or position that he had in terms of the bigger picture of the Roman Empire. Does that make sense? And here Herod is at a place where he desperately wants the favor of the Jews. His mother, I think her name is Miriam, was actually from Maccabean descent. And if you know the John Hammer, the, Maccab- the Maccabean reign, um, these were basically the people of Jewish descent that tried to defeat Rome on their own and then they lost and all, all this stuff. But, but um, so, she w- so he, in other words, he had some Jewish descent. He was Roman and, and partially Jewish, okay? And so he wanted the favor of the Jews. And it says that Herod would actually go to the temple. He would participate in the Jewish festivals with the Jewish people. 
and he tried to win their approval and their favor. And as the Christians, oh yeah, as the Christians were growing in prominence, again, about 10 years after the resurrection of Christ, Herod sees this, and he's intimidated by them, and he recognizes that they're kind of a thorn in the flesh to the, to the Jews, and he makes a decision to take James and to have him executed. And after doing so, he sees that that pleased the Jews. I don't know exactly how he determined that, whether they were, like, celebrating, kind of morbid, or whether they were, you know, coming to him and saying, hey, you know, that's great, and, like, that's going to stop them. They're... They're done. The Christian movement will go away now because we've killed James. Let's get Peter too, right? Didn't work. Didn't work. Um, But eventually he goes and and he he arrests Peter as well. So he was grandson of Herod the Great. He was motivated to find favor with the Jews. He attended the festivals and visited the temple. He supported the Pharisees, but he was ruthless with sex and small upbringings. It was actually pretty neat. Um, Katie and I were visiting our siblings in Europe recently, and we were in... uh, uh, Italy afterwards, kind of near anniversary of baby moon. Little Isaac, this is kind of a crazy fact, he's been in nine countries in utero. <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy. A lot of stories. Pretty fun. But um, when we were there, we were in the Louvre. And as we were in the Louvre, we were going, it's either the Louvre or the Vatican. I can't remember exactly which one. You go to Europe, and it's like everything is a beautiful cathedral and everything is a museum. I don't know if you remember there. It was like overwhelming. Um, but we were at one of those, the Louvre or the Vatican, and we came across this thing, and it said Herod Agrippa, and it was a bust of Herod. And you actually, like, I remember, like, you know, taking some video and pictures of it, like, wow, the Bible clearly talks about this, and here's all these, like, artifacts in these museums with, with all this, this kind of information about him and so on. That's actually one I just got online because I couldn't find the uh, image that I took on my phone from my, <laughs> my camera roll, but that's okay. I thought it'd be cooler if it was, like, the only picture I took, you know. Um, but, but here you have this, this man. Um, you know, tumultuous past, trying to get the approval of people, even though he's in a a position of power and prominence as a king, probably totally insecure, trying to to figure out his place and maintains a little bit of control while he has what he has, um, and, and basically made some really horrible and ruthless and unjust decisions to try to earn people's approval. In John 16, 2, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Herod was a religious person. He had belief in God. And it's possible that in doing this, he thought that he was, you know, just killing some, you know, cult leader and that it was in service to God. People today will kill people in the name of, of God. It's tragic. Um, 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. At this time and even today, there are people who want to just have people tell them what they want to hear. And they'll do things. We live in a, in a political season today where people will, make, will, will compromise their character and what they say and what they believe and how they behave based on how they think it will affect popular opinion and what positions of prominence they may receive or may get. Right? We see that. And what I think we can learn from this, especially in a couple of weeks when we see that God does not look favorably on Herod and how he responded and how he did this, especially when people begin to worship him or praise him as a, as a God. 
that we as followers of Christ need to let the Bible, God's word, and our faith in Christ to be the filter in which we evaluate um, leaders and celebrity politicians and people in places of prominence. We need to let God's word be the, the guiding force for how we seek to conduct our lives and how we live out who, who we want to be in the world, seeking the approval of, of God and not of man. And Herod was not that way. And so he has uh, James killed, and then he has Peter arrested. So if we go to the next, um, next slide, I think there's... Okay, so oh yeah, real quick about Herod. So there you have Herod the Great, and then he had four kids. One of them was Aristobulus, probably said that wrong. And then one of his sons was Herod Agrippa I. And then Herod Agrippa had Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice, and Drusilla. And so this is Herod Agrippa I, who we're, we're talking about. There was also Herod Antipas, who's talked about in the scripture. And so for me, you know, you hear, you're reading through and you hear, you know, during the time of Herod, or during Herod Antipas, or during Agrippa, or during Herod the Great. And it's kind of confusing to know when was happening where. And this is Herod Agrippa, who ruled again over Judea for about a four-year period, um, about A.D. 41 to 45 or so, around that time. Is that, is that helpful? Does that make sense? So there were multiple Herods, and this is who we're talking about. Okay, so if you go to the, the next one, I think is... Um, it says here in the passage, it says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. Unleavened, the, the days of unleavened bread, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was during the time frame of the Passover in the Jewish calendar, but... Passover is like one, one day, one night. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was like a seven-day period, a week-long period. Okay? And so it says, after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So this is just an image of, of Roman uh, guards or soldiers. So he had um, four squads of four soldiers. It was a lot of coverage, if you will. There was a lot of... Um, manpower to, to, to guard Peter. This was a significant arrest. They, they took this very seriously, which makes it that much more significant when we see how God intervenes and actually rescues Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. So let's look at that last part. That the early church response to persecution was to pray earnestly. You can imagine how they must have felt gutted and just grieving with the death of James. And now their other main leader, Peter, was arrested. And if they probably, rightfully so, just assumed he was going to be executed the same way James was. But they didn't just accept that. They began to pray. And as they pray, we'll see next week how God, spoiler alert, Peter gets out. Okay, so Peter gets arrested, but he gets out. And they begin to pray fervently, and they pray earnestly for him. All of them gathered together, and they began to pray. And I think this is a challenge to us to think about how do we pray when there are hardships or suffering or challenge or persecution on the church? Do we pray? Are we earnest? That's why I was so encouraged this morning to hear that the community group and the church praying for Charlotte began to pray earnestly, and God intervened, and God acted. Pretty incredible. And so... A couple of verses 
Matthew 5, um, 11 through 12, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> and then in Matthew 5, 43-48, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And kind of transition here as we see what this passage is saying, kind of think about application for our lives and what does this this mean for us today. I wanted to talk about this reality that in this situation, you know, these early Christians, they're called to pray for those who persecute them. They're obviously praying for Peter. They're probably praying for Herod, that he would change his mind, that God would intervene. But I think that this passage... And this whole situation in history of the early church brings up the question about how God interacts and intervenes in the world. And this, I think, is, is, is close to home for many of us. Because here you have a situation. You have James, Peter. Both of them had brothers. Both of them were leaders in the church. And you have a situation where Herod chose to execute James and God allowed it to happen. Then he arrests Peter and was most likely going to execute Peter. And God intervened. And Peter is is rescued or is saved. And when I was looking at that, it made me start to, to think and ask the question that sometimes it's hard to understand why God does, chooses to intervene or to not intervene in, our, in the circumstances of our life. Some of you, I'm sure many of you, have had situations where there's family members or friends or stories that you hear about where somebody has, is sick or somebody is in a season of trial and they ask us to pray and we pray faithfully to God, earnestly to God, but the person maybe doesn't get better or somebody still dies. Have we ever had that experience? I think we have. And then other times you have situations where you hear these stories of, you know, man, we, we prayed, I was, they were sick, they had cancer, we prayed, and God healed them miraculously, and now they're better. And if you just come from this situation where you prayed earnestly and you don't see God intervene, and then you hear the story of these people prayed and then God didn't intervene, that can leave us with, with dissonance, it can leave us with confusion. Is that fair to say? About God, why? Why did you spare this person but not this person? Why did you intervene in this circumstance and not in this circumstance, if you could? And I think that's important to acknowledge because we see it here, we see it in our own lives, and, and it's something that we're going to face in this world. I was challenged with this question when I was uh, pretty young, when I was 17 years old. Because I was in a situation where um, I, had a, I, had a, I had a pretty dr- dramatic year. That was, it, was about my, it was my sophomore year of high school. And I shared this story, I think, last time I taught here at Calvary about an accident that I was in. Uh, there was a situation where my dad's here this morning. Um, he can recount his version of this if you want to ask me after. But we went on a snowboarding trip. We were coming home. Uh, I was driving with my two youngest brothers in the car. And long story short, I started to fall asleep, and we rolled this van. 
three times. I, I joked that, you know, I landed it, and my first thought was, man, I really hope my dad doesn't notice. You know? <laughs> and I get out of the car, and every window's cracked. Actually, there's an image, a picture of the car. That's, that's the car after it got, you know, towed back to wherever. What's that? He's going to notice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That was my second thought. Okay, he's going to notice. But at least he'll be, at least it's so bad, he's just going to be thankful that we're alive. And then my next thought was like, am I alive? Like, and then it was, are my brothers alive? And I ran back to the door. I opened the side door, and all this dust was coming out. My youngest brother, Micah, I think there's a picture of my two brothers. My youngest brother, Micah, kind of, uh, yeah, that one on the, on the right there, on this side. He kind of goes like, man, Luke, what'd you do that for? You know. And I pull him out, and he was okay. My other brother, Landon, he was okay. And we were in this accident with this van, a really pretty serious accident, and we were okay. None of us were really injured. Mike had a small paper, like, you know, his arm was bleeding a little bit, and I was like, oh, my gosh, he's going to lose his arm. We, like, wiped away the blood, and it was, it was a paper cut. It was nothing. <laughs> but I tell you this story because a month later, I was looking at the dates. I don't even think I realized this until this year, but about, it was about a month later that some of my close friends, two of them were brothers, another guy, two of them were teammates of mine playing soccer growing up. They had left uh, the mall, I think. It was, it was late at night, and they were in a car with a guy who was driving really fast, potentially some substance abuse. There was five people in this car, and they went driving on Soledad Canyon Road, right near where, where our family lives, going 103 miles per hour, ended up crashing, flipped over, hit another car, and my three friends, two of them brothers, died in this accident. This is... Um, Timmy and Danny, uh, or Timothy and Daniel, those are full names. We knew him as Timmy and Danny. One was a hockey player. The other guy was actually, um, the, had set the school record in backstroke, uh, Timothy. For, for our, he was my sister's age. The other one was younger. Another guy, Nikki, who was a close friend. It was a month after our accident, and their lives were lost. And it wrecked our whole community. The guy who was driving went to jail for many years for a victim of manslaughter. I mean, it was, it was, it was intense. The, the other man who was killed in the other car was the dad of one of the girls at our school. I mean, our whole school, our whole community was just rocked by this tragedy. And I, as a, soft, as a 17-year-old, a sophomore in high school, was left to wrestle with that question. You can go to the, the next one or maybe a, a blank slide. I was left to wrestle with that question, God, why? Why did you spare us but, but not them? I, I could have easily died in that situation. And, and I remember wrestling through it and trying to make sense of it or, or get some type of answer. Like I was thinking about it hoping that I would get to the end of the, the thought process and have some type of conclusion or resolve or some type of response or some type of answer. Does that make sense? As I was thinking about it. And I came to the conclusion that, you know what, there really isn't necessarily going to be an answer. There isn't an answer. There isn't a clear answer where God in those circumstances tells you, okay, here's why I spared you guys and here's why I let, you know, I didn't in this situation. But that does not how it works. And, and for me, it's this challenge of how do we respond to the seemingly arbitrary intervention of God in the world and in our lives at times. And I think what the response truly is, is that in the midst of it, God is still good, God is still faithful, and that suffering is going to be a reality in this world. He does warn us about it. And he, the answer is that God gives us his promises in his word that we can cling to, that can encourage and comfort us, and then our response becomes the question of stewardship. I can't answer the question of why my brothers and I lived and, the, and my friends didn't, 
but I can know that I now have a responsibility to steward my life to the glory of God and to minister in the opportunity and the time and the breath that I have to my friends and to my peers and to the places in the world that God would send me to make a difference for his kingdom and his glory. And I think that should be all of our response, that we can't know why God allows one or the other, but if we have breath in our lungs, if we have life to live, we have the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to steward those days and those hours and that time to the glory of God. We can't know why, but we can know that he has given us more time, more life, and he'll use us for his purposes, his goodness, if we'll let him. Amen? Is that fair? It's heavy, but, it, but I think it's fair. I think it's true. And we see this in Jesus in Luke 13. I think I'm getting close on time. I am. I'm over time. I apologize. I'll wrap it up. The band wants to start to come back up. That's what you say when you're wrapping it up, right? Um, Jesus actually says this. I'll just paraphrase it. When he's, he's confronted with people that are saying, hey, this tragedy happened. This building fell and killed all these people. Is that because of their sin or their parents' sin? And he said, actually, can you put it up just so I can get it close to, right? <laughs> When the Galileans, those whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the towers of Ceylon fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, Jesus says, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will perish. Basically, they were trying to make sense of it. Did, they, did these people die because they were like bad people and God was punishing them and these people lived because... And Jesus says, no, that's not the answer. You can't figure it out that way. But rather, you have an opportunity to respond to God, to repent, and if you don't, you'll perish. And so his answer, Jesus' answer to this situation of suffering and how do we respond and so on is repent, confess sin, turn to God, and trust him with your life. Repent and follow, trust God. Obey the gospel. Follow the Lord. That should be our response. And it doesn't just leave us at that, but God gives us promises. For me, through hardships and seasons of my life, I've taken time to, to list out promises of God's word. And some of them that have, have encouraged me. Um, can you put a couple of the uh, Peter, First Peter? So Hebrews, it says, through these, <laughs> sorry. So Hebrews 13.5 says, God himself has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Incredible promises. You go to the other Peter one. It says, Through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I was thinking about this reality, this, this challenge for us as we think about hardships that we face and even more so in the blessings that we have and the, um, the incredible life that many of us have been given living here on the Central Coast. We have this responsibility, this opportunity to steward that which has been given to us for the glory of God. Jesus says, those who have been faithful are faithful with little will be entrusted with much. He says, those who have been given much, much is expected. And as an encouragement to us, you know, we think we've a lot of us have been watching the Olympics. You guys been watching the Olympics? It's been pretty cool. You know, swimming, killing it. America's doing, doing a pretty good job. But I was thinking about the family and the friends. You hear people interviewed. 
And they say, man, how did you do that? That was better than you've ever performed and this and that. And they say, you know what? It was the crowd of people here cheering me on and all the people that had come to watch or my family being in the stands and I could hear them cheering. It just gave me the extra encouragement, the extra strength that I needed. And Hebrews 12 tells us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If you go to that image of the, the stadium, you know, this stadium, this, this cloud of witnesses, people watching, as we go through hardships in our life, we can't always know the answers to why we face certain things that we do. But we can know that our Lord and Savior himself who suffered and endured the cross is now at the right hand of God. He's empowering us, cheering for us, rooting for us. James, who endured, is in a cloud of witnesses cheering for us. Paul, who says, I finished the race, I kept the faith, he's there cheering for us. Grandparents, loved ones, people that care for us, they're rooting us on and cheering for us and saying, don't be discouraged. Don't let this cause you to abandon your faith. Trust the Lord, stay the course, persevere, and honor God with the breath and the time and the life that you have. Amen? So we'll kind of wrap it up with that. Let me pray. Um, after some songs, we're going to have time of communion. We also have people up here to pray. I don't know what you may be going through in your life. I don't know. Some of you may be here for the first time, or maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. The Bible tells us that today is a day of salvation. Jesus is reaching out that we might seek him, that we might find him. So I want to pray for us. And uh, if you're at a place where you want to know the Lord, it's as simple as saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. Make me a new person. Forgive me my sin. I put my trust in Jesus. It says that we pass from death to life. And those promises of God's word can become a reality in our life. Lord God, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for this time, Lord. These are some heavy passages. And Lord, we realize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are enduring these same types of hardships and persecution. And I know, Lord, that people here in our own church family are facing difficulty, trials, maybe even persecution at work or from family. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray, Lord, that we would look to you and trust you in every area of our life. And that we would take seriously, Lord, this opportunity and this privilege to steward our lives in a way that honor you and make a difference for your glory and for your kingdom. So, Lord, if anybody's here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that they might receive you and they might find life. And, Lord, for anybody who's going through a hard time, a place of of uncertainty or lack of clarity, Lord, for maybe what seems to be unanswered prayer, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would comfort them, that you would help them to know your promises, and that you would meet them where they're at, Lord, and show them that you are faithful, that you see them. Lord, and that in your time, you will make all things right. Lord, that you work all things for good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we submit these things to you in your name. Amen. Amen.